All right, head on to your class, and we will open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our series that we've entitled Winning the War for Your Soul, Spiritual Warfare. You know, Scripture reveals an astonishing truth. And the astonishing truth that is revealed in Scripture is this, that, that God doesn't just fight for His people or fight in the, along the side of His people. God actually fights in the place of His people. That when the enemy comes against you, there is a very real sense in, in which God Himself takes up the battle and He is the God who fights in your place. You can see this in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 22 very clearly when uh, the writer of Deuteronomy says to Israel, it is the Lord your God who fights for you. The passage that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 6 describes a, a magnificent armor that God has provided to every believer in light of the massive spiritual contest that is going on all around us. And by contest, I actually mean conflict, war. That the enemy of God, the ancient enemy of God, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy of your soul that is described by Peter as an enraged lion who is prowling around looking for someone to devour, somebody to destroy, somebody to, de to defile. In that battle, on that evil day, God has given to you an armor that he has said, if you will wear this armor and you will fight that battle on that day in his strength and the strength that he supplies, then you will stand. And so as we come now to the second piece of armor, I think it's important to remind ourselves that what is at stake really is an amazing piece that God himself has established. And we've been looking at that piece now from the very beginning of our time together in the book of Ephesians as we noted that that's really what God is up to. God is up to establishing a full-orbed shalom. When you think of peace, shalom, it's not a skinny word. It's not a thin word. It is a broad idea. It is a very rich term. And it has to do with all of the conditions of full blessing full favor, uninhabited or unhindered rather, uninhibited uh, fellowship with God. When you think about that fullness of shalom, that is what was broken by sin and that is what Jesus Christ restored when he went to the cross and won our salvation. And that's the idea that, that Paul is presenting to you in the book because you have received this peace, because you are uh, people who now own this peace through your association with Jesus Christ, you must demonstrate this peace, display this peace, preserve this peace in every part of your life, in your personal relationships, in your marriages, in your homes, in your vocation, in your church, which explains something to us, doesn't it? This is why Satan comes so hard at our relationships. Think about how many times the stress and the brokenness in your life comes because of a relationship that has been shattered. Something has happened in your life, in that relationship, in the life of another person 
that has either strained or shattered that shalom. And so God is saying to you, there is an armor that as you wear the armor, you have a divine champion who wore that armor in your place. And that's really what we looked at last week. We noted that this first piece of armor, the belt of truth, is actually established for us as the character and the obedience of Christ that he won for us by his full obedience, his perfect obedience, when he lived on this earth. And it was applied to you because of his substitutionary death on your behalf. When Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, God the Father imputed all of that obedience to him. And so that is why the belt of truth is so foundational. But when you come to the book of Ephesians now in chapter 6, verse 14, there is a second piece of this majestic armor, and it is described as a breastplate. It is a breastplate of righteousness. And just like we saw last week when we looked at the belt of truth, there is an Old Testament passage that sort of frames up the background to this particular piece of armor. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, let me have you go to the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Because here's where we see laid out for us the God of Israel noticing something, doing something, and in the process of what he is doing about what he notices, he is described as wearing this armor. So let's look at chapter 59. Look at verse 1. Immediately Isaiah wants Israel to know something. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And then he introduces the reason why God's hand hasn't saved and why God's ear appears to be closed to them. In verse 2, but your iniquities, your pollution, that's the idea behind the word iniquity, your brokenness, your moral pollution have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You can begin reading in verses 3, 4, and 5 to kind of see how God lays out the reality of all of what he's been talking about. And in verse 5, he says, they weave spider's webs And in verse 6, these webs are what they try to clothe themselves. It's it's sort of an allusion back to the garden, isn't it? Where Adam sinned and Eve sinned and then they went out and they tried to clothe themselves with clothing that was absolutely inadequate. And here is another nation. Here are the descendants of Adam, the sons and daughters of God, and they have so alienated God by their pollution and their sins that God isn't hearing, and in order to protect themselves and to cover themselves, like Adam, they went out and wove something, and here in the text it's described as flimsy as a spider's web. He says their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. The way, verse 8, of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 12, end of verse 11, we hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Verse 14, truth has stumbled in the public square. 
15, truth is lacking. The Lord saw it at the end of verse 15, and it displeased him. And then notice what happens in verse 16. He saw the Lord. He saw there was no man and wondered. He was amazed. That's the idea. He was amazed that there was no one to intercede. Here are these people. They have incredibly messed up. They are incredibly uh, uh, polluted by their sins. They find themselves in a disastrous place. And when the Lord looks around to see who is going to deliver these people from all of this, he saw there was no man. And he marveled that there was no one to help intercede. And then his own arm comes into play. His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. There's our, there's our idea. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will repent, render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. Look at verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. You say, well, what in the world does Isaiah 59 have to do with Ephesians 6? 15 and this breastplate that we have been called to put on. And the answer is this, when God looked at his people and he saw the moral danger that they were in and he saw there was no one to deliver, there was no one to intercede, that's an interesting term, there was no one to come between them and the wrath that he was going to have to bring upon them, there was no one to intercede, God said, okay, I am going to step in and I am going to deliver. I am going to do what my justice demands so that my love can be extended in forgiveness to anyone in Israel who chooses to repent. A redeemer has come to Zion. And when that champion went forth to fight for his people, he wore this breastplate of righteousness as armor. And all these years later, 800 years later, when the Apostle Paul wanted to tell you about something God had given you to wear in your own battle with that same ancient enemy, he points you to the very breastplate that God wore when he went and defeated your enemy for you. So this really is an amazing breastplate. And so I want us this morning to look at four significant things about this breastplate that I think will help us understand how it works, what it is, and and how it is to be at work in our life. And so let's begin with this. What is its function? When you think about this breastplate that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, what is he talking about when he talks about this breastplate of righteousness? Because it's something that uh, we don't normally think about in our own day, in, in our own age, here at the end of verse 14. And Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, when you think about a breastplate, 
in the ancient world, whether it was in the Old Testament or in, in Paul's own day in the Roman world, a breastplate basically was, was sort of a, a, a very thick piece of leather uh, or a piece of metal that had been shaped to go over your upper torso. Sometimes it would go around your back, and its primary purpose was to keep you alive. It was to protect you from any death-dealing blow that would come from a sword thrust, an arrow, uh, or some other weapon or implement of war. Sometimes a soldier would wear a very distinctive breastplate, and the minute you saw the breastplate, you would know exactly what army he was in. For example, in Paul's day, nobody who saw a Roman soldier in a Roman breastplate would ever wonder what army he was in. He would be immediately identified as a soldier in the Roman army. And sometimes a champion, a general, or a great military conqueror would would have inscribed on his breastplate the insignia of his rank or the insignia of his honor. There would be some picture there etched into the breastplate or embossed relief depicting this, this great battle he had won or this great military accomplishment he had done. And so sometimes a, a man, a soldier, a champion would wear that on his breastplate. But if you're really looking to find out what Paul had in mind, the breastplate that he's talking about functions in two ways. It provides you protection, and it provides you identification. It identifies who you are, and it protects you. It gives you unassailable protection and unimpeachable identification. So here's the question. What is this breastplate protecting us from? When Paul says, wear the breastplate, he's obviously wanting you to think in the context of a battle and, and in the context of a scenario where you're coming under attack, and, and he wants you to wear this so that you will be protected. But what exactly is this breastplate of righteousness protecting you from? And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's protecting you from two things. And the first thing may be shocking to you. Because what the breastplate is protecting you from is something that Paul talks about in Romans 1 that is constantly falling down from heaven from God. God is pouring down something from heaven, and whatever is coming down from heaven, this breastplate is your protection. So what is God pouring down from heaven? And, and let me give you some texts to help you see this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, listen to what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul is saying this to the Romans as he explains to them the beauty of the gospel. He is saying this. Everywhere you look, there is unrighteousness, and everywhere you look, that unrighteousness is coming from men who are acting unrighteously. And here is God's response to all of that unrighteousness and to all of those unrighteous men. And his response is this, he is constantly pouring down his wrath from heaven. You say, well, is that really true about me? Because I don't really consider myself 
as someone who's full of unrighteousness or who's doing unrighteous things. Well, listen to Paul again in Romans chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says this, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he quotes two Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, when he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. And so, yes, you are in that number. I am in that number. And Paul says that when God sees your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness, he is pouring down wrath from heaven on that unrighteousness. So what is protecting you from that unrighteousness? And Paul's answer is a different righteousness. The thing that protects you from the wrath of God is not your righteousness. It's a specific righteousness that comes from God himself. It is the only kind of righteousness that is sufficient to protect you from the righteousness that is coming or from the unrighteousness that is all around you. And that's what he had to say in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He said, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness, the one of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So in chapter 1, what we saw coming down from heaven was wrath. And now in chapter three, what is coming down from heaven is a specific kind of righteousness from God. And that righteousness is embodied in the life and in the obedience of a champion, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's why he talked about this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so this is an amazing thing. The way that God protects you from his wrath is by covering you with a shield. And the shield that he covers you with is his own righteousness. It is not your righteousness that comes out of anything that you do. And so when you talk about the shield of righteousness, the, 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 the amazing thing about the shield is that it protects us from the wrath of God that is coming down against all unrighteousness. But it also protects us from the relentless wrath of Satan who constantly accuses us before the Father. And that's exactly how he's described, isn't he, in Zechariah chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12. This incredible spiritual being, this powerful, wicked, ancient enemy of God is standing there before the throne of God and he is looking at your life and he is constantly saying to God, did you see that? Did you hear that? Did you observe that? Did you, did you see what they did? Did you hear what they say? Did you, did you know what they thought? And he is doing this night and day, Revelation says. I mean, we don't think about this, do we? We just really don't think this way. 
We get up in the morning and it's all we can do to get ourselves dressed and out the door on time. And then we've got all kinds of stuff we're doing all day. And, and then we got people we got to talk to, emails we got to answer, phones we got to answer, messages we got to reply to, errands we have to run. And then we come home and we're just barely trying to get supper on the table, spend time with our family, go to bed and get up and do it all over again. And we never stop to think that the entire time we are doing that, there is a very powerful enemy who is standing before the throne of God in the realm that matters and he is pointing to you and he is telling God about everything that you did and he is accusing you and God says I have a shield for that I have something that will cover all of that and when God places this shield on you there is no attack this breastplate that when God there, there, is no, there is no attack, this breastplate that you wear, there is no attack that Satan can find that will penetrate through the breastplate. And so the breastplate protects us, but it also identifies us. We wear this as clothing. Earlier in the book, Paul talked about putting off our old man and putting on our new man. And so as you think about this and you go back to that Isaiah passage, do you remember what Israel was weaving and they were trying to wear as, as a garment? And, 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 and God looks at that and Isaiah says, it's just like a spider web. It's absolutely as useless as something that was produced by an unclean insect. Because spiders in ancient Israel, according to the Torah, were unclean. And here's exactly what you clothe yourself in, and it is completely useless against the righteous anger of God that is coming against all of that iniquity. And Paul says, now, when you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe the word of truth, then you were clothed with a different kind of righteousness. You were made holy and blameless, which is exactly what the Father called you to in chapter 1, verse 4. And Paul says, therefore, because you have now been clothed in this righteousness, put off the clothing of the old man and put on the clothing of the new. And when you put on your new garments, the insignia on the garment is this, righteousness, When you see the garment that you are wearing and you look at the uniform that you are now in, it clearly identifies that you have changed armies and you are now in the army of the Lord of hosts. And the insignia on your breastplate is not some great battle that you fought and won. The insignia on your breastplate is the battle that your champion won for you. And the insignia is this righteousness. By the way, the high priest in ancient Israel used to have uh, a plate that he would put on the beautiful cap, the turban that he would wear. And on that gold plate was the word, holy to the Lord. That's the insignia that is now on your breastplate. And so that's what it does. It identifies us and it protects us. But, but secondly, let's talk about what it is. What is this breastplate of righteousness? And, and, and it sounds almost uh, self-evident, but I don't want to take it that way in my life. And I don't think you should take it in yours. What is this breastplate? And Paul says, okay, this is a breastplate 
that is not physical. We, remember we talked about it at the very beginning of our series that we are not using physical weapons to fight the war that is going on in this spiritual realm. So what is this breastplate? What is it made up? What, what, is, what, what is it constituted by? And the answer is it's made up of righteousness. So what righteousness is in view? When Paul uses the word righteous, it comes from a word that means to meet a standard, it, to meet an obligation, to meet a demand. So let's say you uh, wanted to go somewhere and in order to go to the place you wanted to go, there was an entrance requirement. And whatever that entrance requirement was, if you met it, you were righteous and you could go in. If you didn't meet it, you were unrighteous and you were denied entrance. That's the idea. That, that you meet an expectation, that you meet a standard, that you meet an obligation. Sometimes it was used to describe a scale. And so a scale was set up so that it would render a just uh, uh, decision. So if you put a, a one pound weight on this side, then you could expect that when you went to buy a pound of beans or rice or wheat, that that, that scale would perfectly balance because that weight was righteous, and those scales were rendering a righteous judgment. It was measuring accurately. It was meeting the standard. And so when you think about the word righteous, it means to perfectly meet the standard. So what standard is it talking about? And the answer is it's talking about God's standard, God's perfect law. And so when you come into a relationship with God in which you hope to be blessed by God, to be received by God, to see God, to dwell with God, here's the requirement. Perfect righteousness. Holiness. You have to meet every standard all the time. In deed, in word, in thought, and in motive. You can't omit anything God wants you to do. You can't commit anything God doesn't want you to do. And you have to do this for your entire life, consistently, without ever failing once. That's the standard. Why is it such a big deal? Well, Peter says if you want to experience God, you are going to have to be as holy as God is holy. That's why he says, be holy, because God is like this. God says, be holy, for I am holy. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, if we are going to have fellowship with him and enjoy his blessing, then we are going to have to find a way to meet God's standards. And here's the big problem. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says that without this, without this righteousness, no one will see God. No one will be received by God. And so that's a huge deal. The penalty for not meeting the standard is huge. It has eternal consequences. It's eventual death in this life, like God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and in Romans 5 verse 12, he tells us that because sin came into the world, death followed sin. And it's eternal death 
in physical conscious torment in the next life in a place called the lake of fire. And there are many texts that speak this way. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. That's the idea of condemnation, execution. Romans 20, verse 15 talks about the devil and his angels being tossed, hurled literally into the lake of fire. Mark 9, Matthew 13, and Matthew 25 all talk about a place of eternal torment where people go because they have not met God's perfect standard. I want you to think about this. I was reading something this week, and it really struck me. Sinners never choose hell. They choose sin. There's a big difference. No one standing on the brink of the lake of fire willingly jumps in. That is why they are hurled in. No one chooses to spend eternity in hell. That is what nobody wants. What everybody wants is the pleasure of sin for a season. And so they are deceived and they choose sin. And the penalty for choosing sin even once is this horrific lake of fire. And so they get what they didn't want with all of their hearts when it is eternally too late. And the problem with choosing even one sin, even one time, is it condemns me to that eternal torment in the lake of fire. That's exactly what James chapter 2, verse 10 talks about. So whatever this righteousness is that God has provided, it is an amazing righteousness because it delivers me from all of that. So what kind of righteousness does Paul have in mind? And, and so he, he will, he'll, he'll tell you this. It, it's not the kind of righteousness that you get by your own self-effort. You can read this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So I don't get this kind of righteousness by self-effort. I don't get it by law-keeping. I'll never get it by trying to keep the law. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul, the author of all of this, said this, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So I get it from God as a free gift because of his grace and his mercy. So what do I have to do to get this righteousness? I mean, really, what do I have to do? And this morning, let me just lay out for those of you who may be wondering this, and I don't want to ever take it for granted that everybody hearing me, either here in person or online, has really come to that place where they've received this righteousness. If you and I want this righteousness, we have to admit something. And what we have to admit is something we all know. All have what? sinned. We, we have all missed the mark. We have all stepped over the line at, at some point. Actually, we, we have Proverbs this way in our own world, right? A- after all, nobody is what? How do we say that? Nobody is perfect. We're only human. He's a chip off the, the apple didn't fall far from the 
tree. What do we mean by that? We mean that along the way, some more than others, we have stepped over the line and we have missed God's mark. We have sinned. So we have to admit that. And that's not hard because, you know, if you're having trouble with that, ask your wife. She can help you with that. Ask your mom. She can help you with that. Ask your dad. Here's, here's the hard part. I have to admit something, but then I have to agree with something. And here's what I have to agree with. I have to agree that God was righteous in condemning me for that sin to the lake of fire. I have to agree that God's actually doing the right thing as a righteous judge to condemn me to eternal death. That's hard. Because when you walk up to somebody in the mall and you start talking to them about sin, they're not really going to have a big problem acknowledging that they're sinners. But if you say to them, do you think you ought to go to hell, what do you think their answer is going to be? Of course not. Generally, now some people will acknowledge that, but generally they're going to say, no, I don't deserve to go to hell. After all, I, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't murdered as, those, as though those were the only sins that really merited any kind of eternal punishment, right? And God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he says this, the wages of sin... The, the recompense of that is death. And he's talking about execution here. He's talking about the fact that the minute you stepped over the line, you became a cosmic criminal. I became a cosmic criminal. And we stand before a righteous judge who in righteousness has to judge us. And there's only one sentence for a crime against his laws, and it's the sentence of death. So once I see the seriousness of that, then, then I have to abandon something. I have to abandon all of my own efforts. I've got to abandon all of my little efforts to try to fix it. Because I have nothing, I have nothing that I can give to God that will come anywhere close to the kind of righteousness that I need. I've used this illustration before, but you know, think about going to Walmart. I spent my day yesterday doing errands. And, and I was in various stores, and you, you stand in this long line, and then you get up to the counter, and somebody rings you up, and then they want you to pay. Ama- amazing, they want you to pay. None of that stuff's just free. So you pull out, you know, your method of payment, and let's say that I pull out a little sack that I've got there in the bag, in the buggy with me, and I pull out the sack, and people, you know, have you ever been in a line where somebody's just taking an inordinately long time and you have this like smile on your face, but you have this internal conversation that's going on like, are you kidding me? Just pay. Don't forget the coupon. They want to argue about the date on the coupon. Just get, here, I'll pay for that. You ever, you, you don't ever say that, but that's kind of going on in your head. So now I'm the guy in the line and I'm, I'm rooting around in my bag and I pull out a wad of money, cash, and I dump it right there in front of the lady to pay for whatever it is I got in my buggy. And she looks at this cat or cash and she stares at it. And I'm like, be impressed. It's cash. Be very impressed. And then she looks at me and she says, sir, is this Monopoly money? Yeah. I got 10 Monopoly games for Christmas. And I decided to spend the, all the cash. 
And she's going to look at me, and I mean, there's like piles of Monopoly money right there. Some of you should actually try this one time, just so you have that experience. But don't tell them I told you to. (laughs) This lady is going to look at me, and eventually she's going to say something to me. She's going to say, sir, that's that's not going to work for you. And I'm going to go back and say, what? Isn't it enough? I got more in the car. I can go out there. I got sack loads of this stuff. Because after I'm done at Walmart, I'm going to Target, Home Depot, and Lowe's. And, I, and so I bought sacks of this stuff. And eventually, she's going to get around to saying to me, you know, actually, the problem is not the quantity of the Monopoly money that you brought. It, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a quantity problem. It's the wrong kind of money. This works in Monopoly, but it doesn't work in life. And that's a pretty good illustration of what I've got to come to realize, that all of my earthly works of righteousness, all of the things that I do, like getting baptized or coming to church or joining the church or being kind to my neighbor or being sweet to my wife or providing for my family, all of those acts of righteousness, when I dump those before God on on the day of evaluation, it's Monopoly righteousness. And I can dump as much of that kind of monopoly righteousness in front of God, and it goes nowhere because it's the wrong kind of righteousness. There's only one kind of righteousness that will protect me from God's wrath, and it is God's righteousness. And there's only one way to get that, and that is this. I have to to repent of my sins, and I have to turn to Jesus Christ And I have to believe what God the Father said about him. That his righteousness and his obedience is the only kind of righteousness that I will accept. And if you ask me for it, I'll impute it to you. I'll put it in your bank account. And when you did that, God put a garment on you. He put a breastplate on you. And it was marked with the righteousness that your champion earned for you. And that's why the source of this breastplate isn't me. God provided it. He's the one that established it for me. He called you to be holy and blameless in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. He's the one that started all of this. You were like Israel in Isaiah 59. You were caught up in your trespasses and sins. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a child of disobedience. You were under God's wrath. If you wanted to know what uniform you were wearing and the insignia on that uniform, the uniform was this, your old man, and the insignia on it was unrighteousness. And God changed everything. In one moment, God quickened you. And out of his mercy and because of his grace, out of this deep love that he had for you, just like God in Old Testament loved Israel, and he himself stood and put on this armor and won for them a repentance and a victory. Your God did the same thing for you through your champion, Jesus Christ. And when he opened your eyes so you could see the truth about Jesus, he gave you the garment of righteousness that Jesus wore as your very own righteousness. So God provided it, but Christ obtained it, and you received it at salvation. 
And that brings me to the final thing, and that is this. So what am I supposed to do now that I have this breastplate? I mean, this is awesome. I am standing before God, and I am safe from every, every drop of God's wrath that comes down on unrighteousness. I, am, I have an unimpeachable identity. No matter what Satan says about me, no matter how loudly he says it or how often he says it or what he points to, I have a breastplate and on that breastplate is an insignia that says righteousness and it's not my righteousness. It's God's righteousness. So when Jesus Christ, who's interceding for me, points to my breastplate that I'm wearing, he's actually pointing to the only righteousness that Satan can never attack. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I am wearing. So now, what is this breastplate supposed to do? And how is it supposed to work in my life? And the answer is this. We should display this breastplate through our own righteous living in our personal lives as Christians and in our corporate lives as a church. How do I do that? Well, it it requires a conversion. You know what the word conversion means? It just means to turn around. It requires a conversion. Salvation involves something called conversion. And conversion simply means this. It means what we just talked about when, we were, when I was talking with our children about baptism. It means that we turn our back on the old way of living that was filled up with unrighteousness. Paul described it in Romans 6 this way. You used to belong to a master. You, you, you were in an army and every day you showed up and you presented your body to that master. And, and you did with that body whatever unrighteousness he told you to do that day. And you were really good at it. And then something happened. You changed armies. You came under a new master. You have a new identity. And so stop showing up to the old master. Come now to the new master and present that same body with those same instruments and, and, and ask this master what he wants you to do and then go do it and live out the righteousness that he's asking you to do. And you know what? By the Spirit's help, you will be very good at that. With the help of your flesh, you were really good at unrighteousness. With the help of the Spirit, you can be good at righteousness. So what does that actually look like? Well, It looks like transformed living that comes through the Spirit's enablement. Notice how Paul says it this way. So when you wear this breastplate, one of the first things that happens to you is you start cultivating radical honesty in your life. You start telling the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Because we are members of one another. When I'm wearing the righteousness of Christ and the Spirit of God is energizing me, that righteousness that is my identity now starts to shape the way I talk and what I do with the truth. I cultivate radical honesty. Look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 4. When I'm wearing this breastplate, I don't just cultivate honesty, I cultivate God-honoring responses. Here's, Here's what they look like. Stop being angry. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Stop being angry in sinful ways. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. You know, people who are in the old army can harbor anger for a long time. Do you remember what you did 32 years ago, six months, eight days, four hours, and 30 minutes ago? Because I do. It was hurtful. And I have been angry at you ever since. And Paul says, look, now that you've put on this breastplate and God has made you righteous and the Spirit of God is energizing, don't, don't do that. In fact, don't let a day end before you reconcile as best as you can with those that you have hurt or those who have hurt you. Don't be angry in sinful ways. Look at chapter 4, verse 28. Now that you wear the breastplate, cultivate personal integrity. Paul says this, stop pilfering. Stop stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's not just that you stop stealing. It's, it's now that you start being generous. You cultivate the opposite of thieving, and it is giving. So you work hard when you show up at work and you have this breastplate on, you ought to be the best employee that your boss has. You ought to be the guy who is giving your boss exactly what your boss has asked for and is paying you for. And you're going beyond that. That's the idea here. Cultivate radical honesty. God-honoring responses, personal integrity, Spirit-approved speech. Notice what he says in verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And remember who's hearing, Paul says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God who's hearing because he's in you. So how does the breastplate of righteousness affect your tongue? Paul says this. what used to be so corrupt that came out of your tongue all the time. There's an old story about a revival that took place in a community of miners in the turn of the century who used to go into the mines and they would mine the ore and they would bring out the mines, uh, the ore on carts that were drawn uh, by ponies or by horses. And this revival came to town and so many of the miners were soundly converted that for the next week they could hardly get any work done because the horses wouldn't move. And the horses wouldn't move because they didn't understand the language that they were now hearing from the miners because it didn't have any cursing in it. Can you imagine what would really happen if righteousness got hold of your tongue and got hold of your mouth and got hold of the way you spoke or communicated or got hold of the way I speak and communicated. And then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, cultivate a Christ-like disposition toward those who hurt you and even those who hate you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This righteousness that comes from God that I now wear because of the perfect obedience of Christ has an insignia on it and the insignia is 
righteous to God. And that righteousness that is now mine, that I wear, not only stops all of the attacks of Satan, it not only protects me from the wrath of God, it actually changes me, it shapes me, it transforms me so that my life is now becoming a righteous life. And you say, okay, now that's, I followed it all along, pastor, until there. Because, man, this, this, I knew it. This righteousness, this breastplate sounds awesome. And I'm so excited. But as I'm looking at it and I'm wearing it, it's obviously not having the effect that you just talked about because I'm still sinning. I'm still, I'm still in a mess. I mean, no matter how hard I try, no matter how many times I repent, no matter what I say and how many promises I make to God, sooner or later, I still end up in this filth. I still end up in this disobedience. I still end up. So this shield, this, this breastplate that you keep talking about, obviously isn't working. And so I want to end with a story that changed a whole lot in my thinking, and I hope it will you. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Zechariah. And I'm going to ask you to turn there as we close because it's absolutely a story that I don't ever want you to forget. You know, if you've ever at one time or another felt the pain or the deep wound of a false accusation, you know how debilitating that can be. You know the depth of the pain. You know the length of the time, the duration of the wound will often have to do with the scope and the breadth of the accusation, and maybe even to do with the position of the accuser. So you know that. When you get to Zechariah 3, you are looking at someone who is being accused at the highest place in the universe. Joshua was the high priest of Israel. After the captivity, he'd come back to Israel to rebuild the temple And he is actually now in a vision standing before the throne of heaven. And there are two people there with him. On the one hand is a brilliant being who radiates light. And his name is Satan and he is accusing Joshua. And you can see it in Zechariah 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That's Christ and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, doesn't Joshua belong to me? You're standing here with the audacity to open up your mouth and accuse this man, and I'm telling you, he belongs to me. I plucked him out of the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. He was wearing the best garments that an Israelite could ever hope to wear. He was wearing the garments of the high priest. If you go back in Exodus and in Leviticus and in the Pentateuch, those garments were carefully crafted. They were brilliant. They were, they were beautiful garments, and, and no high priest would ever go into the presence of God and minister in the temple without those garments. And so here is Joshua in those garments, and in the place of God's holiness, those garments look like they are absolutely filthy rags. 
It's the strongest term in the Old Testament for filth you can imagine. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord, Christ, was standing by. What are you supposed to do in Ephesians 6? Stand. Here is Jesus, and he is standing. And here is the enemy of God's people, and he is taking the most righteous man on the planet, and he is pointing to his garments, and he is saying, look at the filth on those garments. Look at the pollution on those garments. And you know what? He was right. Those garments were filthy, and they were polluted. And when Satan looks at me, and he looks at you, and he says to God, did you see what he just did? Did you see what she just said? Did you catch what they were thinking? And and you know what? He's actually right, because we did do that, and we did think that, and we did say that. And, And we would actually be guilty before God because Satan is not casting in that moment a false accusation. He's telling the truth about our garments until Jesus steps up and says, no, wait a minute. I took those garments off him, and I put a brilliant robe of righteousness on him and on her. That's the garment that he's wearing when he stands before me. And by the way, that's your garment, and that's my garment. And you know what happens when that's the garment that you wear? All of our little unrighteousnesses disappear in the sight of God because our champion has made us righteous. That's why our little righteousnesses aren't there to sort of duct tape themselves onto this brilliant robe. They're they're the outflow of that robe. They're the outflow of that garment. It's what we do because we have been made righteous. And when we fail, we don't hold up our failure and say, see, I broke the righteousness as though our little tiny failure could undo the massive obedience of Christ. It's like our little sin over here just shattered this beautiful garment and it's no good anymore. And God says, are you kidding me? You had nothing to do with that garment and you can do nothing to affect the garment and it's yours. So let's deal with your little brokenness by repenting and confessing and turning and living righteously. You say, well, how many times? Well, Peter, how many times? 70 times seven. 700 times 7. Your unrighteousness will never exhaust the righteousness of Christ. That's why this is your breastplate. 